Well, greetings in the name of Jesus to all who are gathered here this morning. May grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied to you. This morning for a message will be part two of uh, the message I began last time I preached, Hearing from God. And if you recall, um, in that message on hearing from God, I focused primarily on the importance of hearing from God, what that means, and, and that we should desire it. We should welcome God speaking to us. Uh, we should treasure his word and his uh, instructions, um, instruction, reproof, and, and just the, uh, the desire that we should have to seek out the will of God and to hear from God. Now in part two, on hearing from God, I want to talk a bit more of some of the practical aspects of what it means to hear from God, and also in that, a bit of a warning on some of the wrong concepts about hearing from God. As I mentioned in the other message, there are many voices out there as to how and why and and. Uh, about hearing from God, and I'd just like to give some practical teaching on that. Psalm 85, verses 6 through 8 says, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints but let them not turn again to folly. So there's David's uh, delight in hearing. He says, I will hear what God the Lord will speak. And there's that hearing ear. One of the concerns I have in this matter of hearing from God is the teaching that's abounding today that would define hearing from God as a specific event or uh, what I would call a subjective experience. And and many times that subjective experience uh, is sought at the expense of what is actual obedience to the Word of God. And what I mean by a subjective experience is an experience that is not, uh, well, as contrasted with objective. Objective has clearly defined boundaries. It can be specified and, and made plain. A subjective experience is one that is subject to your own feelings, your thoughts and interpretations, and uh, not an absolute. Now that doesn't mean that all subjective thoughts or experiences are bad. It's just that they should not be depended upon as a sure foundation. I think you all are, um, have heard of situations and occasions where people have thought they were hearing from God, have claimed to be hearing from God, and yet have gone so far astray into wickedness. Uh, that it is just a, uh, it's a reproach to the name of Christ while claiming to have been hearing from God. 
And the question that we should ask ourselves is, how can that be? How is it that someone is so deceived into thinking that they're hearing from God when in fact they're not hearing from God? Well, let's note, first of all, uh, on the warnings from Scripture that would uh, tell us that it's not necessarily what a person claims. And we'll look at this in the prophets. Isaiah chapter 8 is one of those. And I'd like for you to turn with me to that. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now God's word is that which is sure, it's steadfast, it is eternally established in the heavens. It is a word that shall never pass away, and it says here clearly, to the law and to the testimony, that's speaking about the word of God, if it's not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now, the context here is uh, the verse just immediately prior. Let's read that now. It says, And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter. Should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now this stresses the importance of following the word of God. And the Word of God made it clear that he does not want people to seek after wizards and uh, enchanters and those with familiar spirits and so on. And in the context here of this topic of hearing from God, the contrast here is between seeking after familiar spirits or wizards or those that profess to have superior knowledge. And why is it that people are enticed or persuaded to go after other sources other than God, even that which is evil, to find answers or to seek wisdom or understanding? Why? Why would they? Those who would profess to know God would choose to follow God, why would they seek after something else? And for an example, think of Saul. Why did Saul go to the witch of Endor? For an answer. He was perplexed, he was distressed, and he wanted an answer. He wanted some guidance. And instead of seeking after God, he went to the witch. Now what was it that persuaded him to go? I mean, why didn't he just seek God? Well, we know the story as it's very clear that Saul's heart was departing away from God. And at the point where he went to the witch, I think we could sort of boil it down to this, that in his mind, that was the easiest and most accurate way to get some information or to, to, uh, to understand or receive guidance. That seemed somehow more appealing than going to God. And God was very displeased and judged him for it, and he should have sought after God. The information he wanted and needed should have been received from God, not from the hand of the enemy. And so that was his transgression. Well, I would 
just suggests that one of the motivations for people to seek after other things like familiar spirits and wizards and whatever, uh, what have you, is because it seems like an easier avenue. It seems maybe like it would be more direct or more accurate or whatever. And it generally also indicates that people's heart is departing from God. They are no longer content to live by faith. Uh, and I will stress that as the, an important thing to keep in mind is that when we think about hearing from God and are seeking God for answers, the call from the scriptures and from the word of God is that we live by faith and not by sight. Now that doesn't mean that our way needs to be obscure. But it does mean that walking by faith requires just that, faith. Even if we are not receiving a voice from heaven that tells us exactly where we should go and what we should do, we walk by faith. And we need to do that in, in reality. We walk by faith. And when I stress that, I'm not implying that God doesn't speak to us or that God doesn't make our way plain. But we have to exercise ourselves in faith to seek God and his direction and not to seek after some other methods. One of the subjective experiences that I uh, would warn against is found in some counseling methods where life's difficulties and, and distresses, uh, the remedy for them is sought in some kind of a, what I call a subjective experience, where you try to, you go into somewhat of a meditative or trance state where you imagine uh, what Christ or you think back to some distressing experience in your life, and then you picture Christ coming into the scene. There was a man by the name, I believe, of Ed Smith, who developed a system of helping people that uh, was, I think he called it, uh, theophostic counseling, and that was back in the 1990s. And it's been around in variations and still around today. The concept that you go into somewhat of a um, meditative state, clear your mind of other thoughts, and focus on uh, this picture of Christ coming into your experience and an experience in the past, something that was hurtful and, and so on. Well, there is a problem with that type of approach to hearing from God. And the problem is this, that when you use that method and approach, this subjective experience, you are also potentially opening yourself to deception. And even the man who made this popular taught in his uh, instructions that as you picture Christ coming into the scene, you have to be careful that it's not an evil spirit who is appearing and speaking to you. Well, it's a good warning. The problem is that it's his whole method is flawed because of that concept that some subjective experience will give you the truth. And I fear that that type of counseling or those concepts, that that is how you hear from God, is, is flawed and, and it will lead people astray where they can actually be listening to evil spirits rather than the Spirit of Christ. I'll maybe just touch on this, probably mention it again later, but... Along with this type of counseling is this concept that 
one has to clear one's mind of all thoughts and then be hearing or receiving uh, some message from the Lord. Now, I believe that thinking is flawed because the concept of clearing your mind of all distracting thoughts, now I'll, I'll clarify that later, but the idea that you empty your mind so that you can receive from God is a very dangerous flaw because that's not what the Word of God asks us to do. And when we do such a thing, we open ourselves to the possibility that it will be some other entity, some other spirits that speak to us. And so beware of any thought or teaching that, that teaches you to try to empty your mind and clear it of all distracting things so that you can hear, uh, supposedly hear from God. Now I'd like to go yet uh, to another portion of scripture about the warning of wrong teaching. This is in Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, verses 15 through 32. This is a bit longer portion. Jeremiah 23, 15. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with wormwood and make them drink the water of gall. For from the prophets of Jerusalem is profaneness gone forth into all the land. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. They say still unto them that despise me, The Lord hath said, Ye shall have peace. And they say unto every one that walketh after the imagination of his own heart, No evil shall come upon you. For who hath stood in the counsel of the Lord, and hath perceived and heard his word? Who hath marked his word and heard it? Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord is gone forth in fury, even a grievous whirlwind. It shall fall grievously upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord shall not return until he have executed, until he have performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days he shall consider it perfectly." I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God far off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? I have heard what the prophets said, that prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams which they tell every man to his neighbor, as your fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream, and he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words every one from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, he saith, Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. 
Now understand, this is an Old Testament setting where the Lord spoke by the mouth of prophets. Prior to the coming of Christ, he spoke unto the people by the words of the prophets. And in Hebrews it tells us that he hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Now, so in this Old Testament setting, it was a bit different than we have today where we do have the word of the Lord, the clear counsel of Jesus Christ and his teaching, his instruction in the New Testament. But the principle here of God speaking through the prophets, and then there were those prophets who claimed to be speaking for God, and God had not sent them. They made a profession to be hearing from God when in fact they were speaking contrary to God. Now we have even less excuse today because we do have the Word of God. We have the clear New Testament instruction from God on how we should live. The background or the setting here is that in Jeremiah's day, God had spoken judgment upon the people for their wickedness and said that the king of Babylon is coming and that they should not resist because he is coming to destroy this city. Well, there were prophets in their midst that rejected that as... um, They said, that's just fear-mongering. That you need to... The Lord is speaking peace to you. And the Lord was actually speaking by the prophet Jeremiah, though his voice was um, rejected by many, and, and it seemed like a lone voice, perhaps. But these prophets who claimed to be speaking for God were trying to speak peace to the people when he should have they should have been urging them to repent and turn from their wicked ways. So those are two places where it talks about people claiming to hear from God when in fact they are not hearing from God. Now, going to the New Testament, I want to look at two examples from the book of Acts about hearing from God. And there are, there are examples of how God works in our day. The first one is in Acts chapter 9 in regard to Paul's conversion. Acts chapter 9, verses 4 through 6 is a story of uh, Saul, who was later called Paul. Uh, But he was on his way to Damascus. In verse 4 it says, uh, verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth. And heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the man which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And so he rose up and went into the city. And uh, and several days later, Ananias came to him. And what I want to draw from this example is that here, when God called Saul... 
as a chosen vessel to serve him, he actually spoke in an audible voice from heaven. Now that is uh, quite unusual. It's unusual even in the New Testament for the conversion of a man where he hears directly from the Lord in heaven. So I'm not suggesting that this is the normal way for a man to be converted, but it is what God chose to use here, and I think it's possible that there are times where God may even use that yet today. But again, understand that is rare. It's not the norm. But nevertheless, even though God spoke from heaven, it was a word of warning. And then Saul humbled himself and he asked this important question. He said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Very similar to what Samuel, when he heard God call his name, several times he mistook it for Eli calling him, but when he finally got instruction from Eli that as Eli caught on that this must be God speaking to him, he instructed Samuel to say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And so Samuel did that. He said, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Very similar uh, humility here in Saul. What wilt thou have me to do? And here was the word of the Lord to him. He said, Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. So there God stopped speaking in his audible voice to Saul and sent him into the city to await instructions from a man who would tell him what he should do. So there is a clear example is that God uses other men to speak the word of the Lord to another individual. So as we follow the account here, the Lord came to Ananias in a vision and spoke to him. I don't think Ananias was looking for this vision. It seemed like he actually uh, was rather distressed and, and he had a few reasonings with the Lord as to why this maybe shouldn't be this way. But God made it plain that he should go. And so Ananias went according to the instruction of the Lord. And it was through Ananias then that Brother Saul received his instructions on what he should do. Well, as you go through the life of Saul, I'm, I'm sorry, Paul, it was clear that God chose him as a special vessel and had many things to show him. And so... As we read this account, he immediately began preaching in the temple, but that only lasted for a short while, and then eventually the Jews sought to kill him, and he left. And in the subsequent years, he spent a lot of time in the, what was it, in Arabia, where he uh, had many years where the Lord showed him visions and, and spoke to him directly. As, he, as Paul later testified that he didn't receive this from the other apostles, he received his revelation from the Lord. But the point, uh, the particular point I want to draw out of this is that God does use other men, other faithful brothers to speak to us, as he did with Saul here. And that principle we would find in other places in the scripture as well. That when we think about hearing from God, it's not just uh, that I'm looking for some special experience that, that makes me feel special like I'm here, I'm the only one hearing from God, or that it's not connected with what anyone else might say. But it needs to be in, um, as 
Scripture talks about things being done decently and in order. God has an order in which he speaks to us. Another point that I would make in, in us understanding what it means to hear from God is that God speaks to us primarily by his word. That's what we have written here, recorded in the scriptures. That is the primary way that God speaks to us. Now there is, a, of course, an intimate connection that can't be separated. This word from the living word. As it says in Hebrews, God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And it is in the New Testament that we have revealed the Son. The living Son of God is revealed to us in these pages. The last book, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It begins that way. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the unveiling or the showing forth of Christ. And while there is, yes, a specific end time event when our eyes will be fully open, there is also clearly a sense that in these words we have revealed to us the living Son of God. And it is primarily through that method that God speaks to us. Another point in understanding about God speaking to us is that God gives wisdom to them that ask him. Now, kind of going back over what I've been saying is if we think to be hearing from God, why would we want to hear from God? Well, we want to be instructed or we want to receive direction. We want to understand what God wants for us. Well, that's great. That's good. However, the scripture plainly says that we, if we lack wisdom, and wisdom is that which instructs us, that which guides us into what we should do. The right way to go is wisdom. If we lack wisdom, we should ask God. And he gives wisdom to those who ask him. And that wisdom, how does that come? Well, again, there are varying avenues. And it's not primarily just a subjective experience where I empty my mind and then uh, somehow God uh, talks to me. God gives wisdom to those who ask. And it tells us in Romans that faith, remember the faith part, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So those are avenues by which we discern what God wants us to do. This is how we hear from God, is we seek wisdom, and we seek it in his word, and it also comes through other uh, counselors, those who are brethren, who can give us help in making decisions. I'd like to turn to the second example from the book of Acts, and this is in chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, let's begin reading at verse 5. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, 
After they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after they had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called for us to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and so on. Now here is an example of a, an event or a time when they needed God's direction. And there are a few details that are not thoroughly explained to us. For example, it says they were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. Now, how did the Lord, how did the Holy Ghost forbid them? Was it an audible voice from heaven? Was it an impression on their spirit? Was it a prophet who said, don't go there? Was it circumstances that just made it impossible for them to go? It doesn't really tell us exactly how the Holy Spirit forbade them. But I would suggest, based on all that we know in the scriptures concerning the work of the Holy Spirit, is that it generally the Holy Spirit does not speak in the audible voice. The Holy Spirit works in conjunction with our spirit. He gives us instructions and impressions. For example, if you study earlier here how, uh, was it Barnabas and Saul, when they set out on this journey, the Lord said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul. This was after the church had been praying and fasting and seeking the Lord, and then the Lord said this. But it doesn't uh, mean, I don't believe, that this was an audible voice from heaven. But somehow God directed the church to send these two men out. So here these men are, and they are forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. And then in verse 7 it says, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia. That word essayed means they attempted or tried. And then it says, but the Spirit suffered them not. And I'm not quite sure, is this referring to that same issue of being forbidden by the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia? Uh, because these... Uh, Bithynia was in Asia, whether this was one occasion or two different occasions, very similar in that it says the Spirit suffered them not. So here you have men who were operating under the general guidance of God and the Spirit of God. And by that I mean Paul had his instructions to preach the gospel. And so, in good faith and in confidence, he made efforts to go and do that. He wanted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. So, here Paul made an effort to do something, and God made it clear that he shouldn't do that. Did that mean that he was going the wrong direction? No. It simply means that this is, God was guiding him, and even though he, in his general obedience to Christ and to the commission that he had, he was wanting to go there, the Lord made it plain that he shouldn't. So, he's again seeking now, what shall we do? Well, then he had a vision. This vision came to him in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And so 
having received this vision, it says this, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called for us to preach the gospel unto them. I'd like you to note these two words, assuredly gathering. So, I conclude from those words that this vision was in accordance with what God was showing them in, his, in their spirit and perhaps the counsel and discussion with the other brothers that were with him because they were assuredly gathering. In other words, they, they took this vision and its indications as a clearing for them to go to Macedonia, having been forbidden to go over here. And what I see in that is that God does not generally divorce his speaking with a working together with our spirit and our thinking and our reasoning and our desires. Now we need to be careful. Our desires can lead us astray. Our, um, our own thinking could interfere, but God generally works with our thinking and with our reasoning if we are submitted unto him. And Paul certainly was. They wanted to go to Bithynia. Nothing wrong with that, is it? It's a furtherance of the gospel. They, that was their general commission, was to go and do this. They, they wanted to do good. But the Spirit made it plain that he doesn't want them to go there. He wants them to go over here. And so they assuredly gathered that this was how God was directing them, and they went. Now that is an example of how God works together uh, he gives wisdom to them that ask. God works through our, our mind and our reasoning processes uh, with the Spirit of God within us. Now, if you think, uh, and this is kind of a whole other subject we could explore, but it's very uh, closely intertwined with this one is how the Spirit of God works in us and how we um, how the Spirit of God speaks to our spirit and where we move in confidence and in peace that God is directing us. There's an element of faith in that. And I believe Paul was operating in faith here. First of all, his desire to go to Bithynia, I believe, was based on his faith that God was wanting him and calling him to preach the gospel. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to go to Bithynia. But in his following of God, the Spirit forbade them to go there, but opened the door for him to go here. And they, they did that. And again, it's not totally clear how in exact detail those, how did the Spirit forbid them, but it does uh, match with the general principles of the Scripture that we seek God, we seek wisdom, we even take circumstances sometimes to guide our way if, if some door is just, it's just absolutely closed. There's no way. Well, we can humble ourselves and say, okay, Lord, then what next? What, what should I do? Now, I mentioned about God not instructing us to necessarily clear our mind of all thoughts so that he can speak to us. And I'd like to look at the next uh, passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10.
2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. Well, maybe I should read the prior verses as well, starting at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence and base among you, but being absent and bold toward you, but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Now let me just interject here some commentary on verse 3. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Now this is where we often have a conflict of mind. Because we do walk in the flesh, and I don't think this here is speaking that we are walking after the flesh, as he talks in Romans, but we are walking in the flesh, meaning we're in this body. We, there's realities. And Paul suffered distresses. He dis- suffered distresses of the body. He dis- suffered distresses of mind. He even had fears, talked about fears within and without. And, and yet, Paul was not one who was given over to fear. But he had to deal with it. He had to battle. He had to reckon with this flesh that we walk in the um, in the flesh. But we do not war after the flesh. In other words, the our goals and ambitions are not after the flesh, but they're warred in the spirit. Then he says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having any readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now here is a very important passage that gives us some clear instruction on how we should be dealing with our thoughts. Notice he says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So we're not, we're not following the flesh. We're not doing that which is carnal, we are striving to be spiritual. We want to be led by the Spirit of God. So he says here, it's not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now this strongholds has to do with spiritual things, spiritual, whether it's, um, as in Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about spiritual wickedness in high places and our prayers and our armor uh, are what we do battle with in the spirit. Strongholds could be um, difficulties. It could be uh, those means by which the enemy would seek to disrupt our efforts or, or gain the advantage. Then it says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. What is it that uh, exalts itself against the knowledge of God? Well, it could be a number of things. But again, how do we get knowledge from God? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God is those things that 
obstruct our taking in the Word of God. Um, Casting down imaginations. If the thoughts of our mind are actually taking us in a direction that is contrary to the way and the will of God or the knowledge of God, that's a problem. And it says further then, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now that's where we must exercise diligence in bringing into obedience every thought. And this is how God's speaking to us interacts with our own thoughts. Okay? Any thought of our own that is working against God or is not subject to the obedience of Christ needs to be brought into captivity. We don't have the liberty to just let our mind run and run and run. We can reason, we can quarrel with ourselves and with our neighbor and with our brother. You know how that works. He said something, she did something, and it goes round and round and round in our mind. And Now wait a minute, is that obedience to Christ? Are those thoughts helpful? No, they're not. So, it's time to take them captive and say no. David said in Psalms, he said, I hate vain thoughts. Do you hate them? Do I hate them? Vain thoughts. Thoughts that will not be productive. They will not yield good fruit. They will not bring resolution. They will not help me then they need to be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And I need to rein in my thinking. When that thinking is brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, then God can use that thinking to help guide us in wisdom and direction from Him. It's part of that walking by faith where we're not looking for an easy, uh, quick answer. We're not looking for just that first impression that comes to our mind. And I've heard that said that, um, well, if you want to know any specific detail of your life, you know, as you're going through the day, just say a prayer, and then the first thought that comes to your mind after the prayer, that's, that's what God wants you to do. Well, I say maybe. Be careful. It could be, but it has to be subjected to other checks and balances that you walk in wisdom. Um, and many times, as we walk in the flesh, not after the flesh, but in the flesh, we have to keep checks and balances on our thinkings and our desires and how where our thoughts go and the impulses. And many times, just in a general sense, the first thought that comes to your mind is not always uh, the wisest uh, thought to go with. So again, God does not instruct us to clear our minds of all thoughts so that he can speak to us. He calls us to take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And again, how do we know what the obedience of Christ is? What what is that? Well, we find that in the Word of God. It teaches us.
as I mentioned before, God speaks to us through our brethren. Now, I believe sometimes the perception is given that hearing directly from God is superior to hearing what our brothers say. Is that how we view it? I don't want to hear what my brothers say. I want to hear from God. Now the perception is given that that's superior and that, you know, that's... Well, I would like to say, based on the Word of God and the clear instructions that we are to be subject one to another, we are to seek counsel, we are to, as Proverbs says over and over, about seeking wisdom and walking in the fear of God, walking in counsel, hear instruction, receive instruction, that we work together with other people of God in guiding our life and, and making decisions. Not in every detail, but the perception that I have this superior connection to God and that I don't need my brothers and that somehow hearing from God should be separate from hearing from my brothers, that is a what would be called a, um, a false, uh, I'm not sure I'm, I'm slipping my mind, a false equivalency or a, a um, false dilemma. Now, Understand that's there. There are boundaries there. We we're not just following after men, or we're not just, uh, you know, just turning everything over to other men. But we together, when we seek God and are seeking wisdom from God, it needs to be subject, at least in part, to the counsel that I receive from my brothers. When you hear those who have grievously strayed from God and have gotten themselves into serious trouble because of their belief that they were hearing from God when they weren't, and they finally say, I should have listened. I should have listened. That's sad. I mean, it's good that they're coming to their senses, but Let's not make that mistake that hearing from God means I go my way contrary to what my brothers tell me. So let me just restate a few of the main points here. One of the central things that I think we should take from this message is that we should not be depending on a subjective experience to hear from God. I'm not saying it's without feelings. I'm not saying it's without those special moments when we feel confidence in our spirit that we're hearing what God wants us to do. I think that should be part of it. But we should not be seeking that as the primary avenue, a subjective experience to hear from God. The second part that goes with that is that hearing from God is a walk of faith. And it is not separate from all the other elements that apply to seeking after God and seeking his will. We subject ourselves to the will of God, to the obedience of Christ, an obedient ear, 
is the one that hears from God. And that means walking with my brethren, seeking counsel. Not just going my own way because, oh, I heard from God. And therefore, you know, your, your voice doesn't count. It's not how God operates. As he said to Saul, go into the city, and there it shall be told thee what thou shalt do. So let's make sure that our concept of how to hear from God is rooted in God's word and the clear example and instruction. And, and understand that hearing from God is a walk of faith. We should not be seeking after just some easy, what seems like an easy um, an easy out, like Saul did when he was away from God, and it seemed too grievous or burdensome to him to seek out God's word and seek after the prophet Samuel's. Well, I guess Samuel was gone from the scene at that point, but Saul was not willing to take God's way, and he sought for an easier and what he thought would be a more clear and direct answer. But he wasn't seeking it from God. We need to be careful to, to do our diligence to make sure that we're doing it according to God's will. May the Lord bless.